Today's reading is Matthew 16:21 through 28. It can be found on page 905 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must first deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward everyone according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we begin. God of grace, thank you for um, the way that you have brought us here. And some of us are even surprised to find that we're sitting in a church and listening to words that perhaps sound more intense and more intimate with you than what we have ever felt or even feel this morning. We come from all kinds of different places. We might come from that kind of a place. We might come with uh, new wounds or grief or sorrow or pain that we're processing this morning. We come sometimes just busy or lulled to sleep by the comforts of life. Some of us come really struggling financially. Others of us come and uh, we have more than we need. We're swimming in it. Some of us come also with a renewed faith that for some reason you have been real to us in recent events like we never thought possible while others of us feel like we're hanging on by threads. So, Lord, will you meet us all in this place? Will you meet us with your words and with your spirit? Would you help us to know that um, you have seen us in all of our rawness, all of our realness, all of our mess, and your response throughout the stories of this book, your response is to move towards us with grace. And may you teach us through that grace this morning. Amen. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were uh, really a dynamic duo, and they were really good friends early on. Jefferson was the pen behind the Declaration of Independence. John Adams was the voice who argued it before the assembly. Jefferson was much more quiet, didn't like to argue, didn't like confrontation. Um, but he wrote it. Later on in life, they, because of the political realities 
Um, and they both, eventually they, be, they came to symbolize two different political parties, even though John Adams was the second president and Thomas Jefferson was his vice president. Um, but they never even exchanged words about policy during those four years of Adams' presidency. And, and Jefferson was secretly mounting a sort of campaign against Adams and working with a journalist who was writing horrible things to try to discredit Adams coming up to the next election and then Jefferson eventually won and became the third president of the United States. So there was obviously a big rift that developed, but they never really had it out. There was never this big argument or confrontation. It was just this subtle knowledge that they had grown apart. The media made a lot out of it, you know, that they were, that they were on separate pages, that they were really against each other, but that never, it never really came out actually in a confrontation. And eventually, I don't know if you know this fun fact, but they died on the exact same day, July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And in their last few years, their last several years, they became friends again, um, pen pals of sorts, because it was all over letters. But they, they kindled that, rekindled that close connection that they had in the early years. They were intellectual equals, and they... And they, and they still never really had it out, never really confronted or dealt with the issues. In some ways, I find that to be almost unbelievable because of how, I, how prone I feel like most of us are towards regretful confrontation. <laughs> anybody have, you know, I won't make you show hands, but anybody have a confrontation in the past that you look at and you just go, oh my goodness, I can't believe, I, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said those things. And you know, you wish you could dial it back, turn back the clock and go back and tell your younger self, you know, just, just back off a little bit. Just relax. Just see how this plays out before you get all feisty and agitated and have to confront. Confrontation is like, it's kind of like brain surgery, you know, and and uh, it's such a delicate thing, and we go in with, you know, baseball bats or shotguns or whatever into this surgery often, and it just, it just you know, creates all this mess. Jesus here, um, as he confronts Peter, one of his, his closest disciples, on whom he has just uh, expressed great faith and said, on, you know, on you I will build my church. That's literally the, the former interaction that we're told about. Then he comes off so strong here. I mean, most of us know that you know if you if you really need to confront someone who's close to you, and if you're going to come at it with any sort of compassion, you're going to pull them away. It's going to be in private. There's going to be no chance of this being heard by others. You don't want to you know embarrass them publicly. Jesus, it seems, does this right in front of the other disciples. They're right there. And he says these harsh words, get behind me, Satan. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, it really seems like he's, he's, he's way too harsh. Um, it seems like, oh, here's Jesus at his, his, his worst as a human being. I mean, this is just a, a massive mistake. He's doing what we all do. He's just letting off some steam because maybe his ministry didn't seem as successful as he was hoping it would be. And so Peter kind of bears the brunt of it. Certainly he's going to apologize later on because of making this big mistake, but that's not at all how it's told. That's not at all. It, it, it's, it's told, in a sense, as a, as a major important thing for us to pay attention to. And you think if Jesus didn't even take the time to pull Peter aside and have a private conversation, he did it publicly, called him Satan publicly, 
why would he do that? There must have been some essential quality that Peter was missing, some essential element of the ministry of Jesus that Peter was, it was possible that Peter was going to go so dreadfully wrong that it had to be dealt with right now, and it didn't matter if everyone saw the mistake. Because everyone, all of Jesus' disciples had to learn from this mistake, and all of us. You know, it was written down and told because we need to learn from this mistake. Um, Jesus, it seems like he makes, I think if you're Peter, you'd probably feel this a lot stronger. It seems like he makes a, a switch, like a transition, because Peter seems to just be having a problem with the fact that Jesus has bad strategy. Um, Je- Jesus begins teaching, and, and he's probably said it a few times by now, by, by the time now that Peter pulls him aside to rebuke him. Jesus has probably a few times already said the same mantra. We're going to Jerusalem, going to suffer, going to be captured, going to die, and then raised to life on the third day. And I think Peter just, just finally says, you know, this is bad strategy. Somebody's got to speak up and take him aside. This is not going to work. And, and literally, just Peter, I think, just really thought that this was, a, this, was a, this was a necessary thing to point out to Jesus, that this is not how you win. This is not how you get ahead. And, um, and Jesus seems to make a switch. He, the conversation goes towards, not towards strategy, but towards identity. Do you notice that, the, the key word that, um, as we get into verse 24, that Jesus, or that Matthew gives us for Jesus' words is, is psuche, like psyche, self, uh, inner life, identity, soul. And that's where the conversation goes. It's all about, um, well, what, what often happens with Jesus' teachings is that, that they force us to stop and look at a deeper issue that's going on. And that deeper issue here is that to stop and realize there's something going on here in terms of how I'm constructing my identity. And that's a huge issue that Jesus wants to get at. And so Peter is the person here that that needs to stop, as we all do, and and look at how are we constructing our identity, our self, our soul, our inner life. How do you get a strong identity? Um, In this uh, this interaction, this get-behind-me-Satan interaction, there's, there's three things we need to hear, actually, about how Jesus wants us to go with finding our self. And the first is where we tend to go, to find ourselves. The second is where Jesus wants us to go to find ourselves. And third is where Jesus goes himself ahead of us. So first of all, where, where do you tend to go? Where will you thrive? Where will you be most alive? Where will you be uh, most vibrant as a spiritual person in 2011? Have you made some resolutions? Have you, have you broken them yet? <laughs> what are we, almost two weeks in? Um, just start again in February, you know, if, you, if you're feeling bad. Just, just have the restart at February. Where are you going to be most vibrant, most alive? Where do you picture 2011 if it goes really well? Most of us look towards some kind of appealing path, some kind of exciting path, whatever looks like the, 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 happy, um, the happy picture of life for us. Um, Now, if you're to follow really what it seems like the mistake that's being pointed out that Peter has made and that we're to learn from, then you should expect that in 2011, there's a good chance that you are going to fall headlong for some some pathway, some decision, some identity 
uh, marker, some relationship or some fad, some inspiration, some diet, some lifestyle, you're going to fall headlong and be certain that, aha, here I will be more alive. I will be more me with this than I was in 2010, than I was last month, than I, than I was in the last decade. Here it is. And you'll be, there's, if this interaction with Peter bears out as being true, then there's a good chance you'll have that kind of certainty about something in 2011. But that if Jesus could talk to you, he would say, no, no, let me tell you to your face, no, that's the wrong way. Isn't that a sobering possibility? <laughs> Just kind of, here I am to bring you the good news of 2011, <laughs> of what this year might bring. Isn't that... But this is what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, basically, that's what we're all prone towards, that kind of dynamic, and it's when we're caught up in merely human concerns that have to do with, try, to his other words that he uses, trying to gain the whole world. And, you know, in a sense, who can blame us? Everybody. Isn't everybody trying to do that? The result is, though, that Jesus says you will lose yourself if you're not, in a sense, if you're not confronted with the reality of what's going on as you pursue your identity. That's where we go to find ourselves. And so when it's resolution time, we, we're, we're trying to, in Jesus' words, we're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to look at how we can protect our life so that mistakes from last year aren't made. How we can uh, achieve a certain number of things that we hope that our life, you know, kind of the sketch of our life includes. We're hoping to excel in certain ways. We're cer- hoping to gain certain desirable things. No one squares up to resolution time. At least I haven't met. Maybe you do. I welcome it if you do. But I don't think very many of us square up to resolution time and say, you know, I'm going to look at this year and, and, and really there's probably going to be some suffering and adversity and I hope to square up to it and learn from it. Resolution number one. Bring on the suffering. Bring on the difficulty. The default mode of the human heart is to be repulsed by suffering, to be uh, to cringe, and to almost laugh at the journey. In the end, it's the journey that Jesus brings up to Peter and his disciples, the journey to the cross. You know how inclined we are to totally just miss the very center of how, how God through Jesus comes to save us, to save our, our identity, to save ourselves. This, this, this um, story just kind of functions to wake us up to how, how blind and how distracted we can be to the essential place that Jesus goes, suffering, the cross, in order to bring you back your identity, in order to save you. We want to save ourselves. And this is the first of three times in Matthew where... Um, where Jesus begins. It's like the rest of the journey of Matthew from chapter 16 and on. Uh, three times Matthew tells that Jesus says the same kind of mantra about how he pulls the disciples away and says, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. He's hoping that the disciples and also that you and I make a transition from being distracted and repulsed by suffering and by the cross and instead, to move out of that, to move out of that, that's why he brings it up right away the first time when Peter resists. Let's get past the repulsion phase and let's move on to the puzzled, trying to understand phase. And so that may apply directly to you right now, is to, to, to kind of stop and move towards just trying to understand the cross, 
just trying to understand, is that really what the Bible says Jesus did to save me and why and how? And what might I learn by looking at this, this suffering and death that all of Jesus' life seemed to lead towards? Why is it there? The other thing that, that we need to learn from this is where Jesus wants you to go, which obviously I'm already hinting at, the path of suffering. Um, and nothing, in a sense, nothing could be more different than the path, the appealing and exciting route that we tend to chart out for our life. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, has been quoted many times for what he says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that when Christ calls a man, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Again, good news for 2011. <laughs> but this is... This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer squaring up to reality that's very real in not only in Jesus' teachings, but as the New Testament church develops. We even find the Apostle Paul, um, if you pay attention carefully to some of the writings of the Apostle Paul, he seems to, to talk almost longingly about the suffering that he's experienced. I mean, real literal beatings, jailings, uh, financial dire straits, uh, all, these, all these things. He talks about as if, it, often with a sense of, of real purpose and meaning in them. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is, this is, this is something that you have to kind of grapple with about the Christian faith, that God, that Jesus, particularly in his teachings, wants to move us towards suffering a little more. And that Jesus didn't suffer himself to save you from suffering, to make it so that you don't have to suffer. That's what we hope for. But So he didn't take suffering away, but he did seem to change it. It's, it's as if now you don't have to lose yourself when you suffer, but you can actually, in suffering, find yourself in Jesus. That's a change that's happened because of what Jesus has done. And what it means is that to become a Christian means to become someone more and more who's, who's not so much of a chicken about suffering and difficulty in life. Um, and Peter, obviously, is still kicking and screaming about it in this interaction. He's still, still quite a... T- it makes you feel a little better, doesn't it? About your fear of suffering and difficulty in life that Peter's saying, no, that'll never happen. Um, picture picture your, yourself having just an amazing year in 2011. I mean, it's a just the best year ever. You come out of it just in terms of your character development, just in terms of who you are and your identity at the end of this year. You come out of it with a confidence amidst your mistakes that you've just never been able to have before. Failures no longer deflate you. But also, in terms of your accomplishments, they don't inflate you unnecessarily. And your accomplishments, um, you have a humility there as you, as you, in your best accomplishments throughout the year. You have this incredible growth of identity. The highs and lows of, of feeling great and feeling you know, incredibly low the next minute, they're not there. There's more of that middle-of-the-road contentment and centeredness in terms of your psuche, your identity, your psyche. Well, how would that happen? How might that come about? Maybe you'll, uh, you know, maybe you'll win the lottery, right? Um, 
in April of 2010, there was a man in Britain who you could say he gained the world, in Jesus' words, by winning the lottery in, in 2005. And in 2010, in April, he died. This is how the story goes. A nine million, I guess it's pounds, nine million pound lottery winner who was conned out of hundreds of thousands after his marriage collapsed has died. Keith Goh scooped a jackpot on the National Lottery in 2005 with ex-wife Louise and splashed his winnings on cars, racehorses, and a VIP box at his beloved Aston Villa. But after drinking heavily, Mr. Goh's 25-year marriage broke down and he was, and he, he was checked into rehab where he was preyed upon by a convicted fraudster, James Prince, and conned out of more than 700,000 pounds. Former work colleague Graham Hall said, it was a tragic end for a larger-than-life character. Luis Goh uh, today refused to talk to reporters. Mr. Goh's funeral will be at Telford Crematorium at April 7, on April 7. That was 2010. By all counts, this is a man who gained the world, right? What a great year. What a great 2010, or what a great year 2005 should have been is when he won the lottery. And he and his wife are pictured holding champagne bottles. A perfect example, in a sense, of what Jesus is talking about. The world is given to you. You lose yourself. I think that that year that I described, 2011, for you being a great year, you coming out of it with an amazing new sense of self and identity, what if the only way that came about is if three things happen in your life that you just, they're just so out of the blue and so horrible when they hit you? And that that is the only way that that kind of growth in character and that kind of connection to God might happen. None of us want to picture that when we think about a year ahead because we're, we're really chicken about suffering. We avoid it like the plague. Uh, 2010 was a different year for another couple. He reached for her hand. It had been five weeks since the accident. Emily Gousseau, 21, lay in a bed in the surgical intensive care unit at Bellevue Hospital Center. She could not see. She could not hear. Beyond asking for water, she spoke very little. Her boyfriend, Alan Lungard, 21, took her left palm in his. Miss Gousseau was riding her bicycle in Brooklyn on the morning of October 8 when an 18-wheel truck making a right turn, struck her. Once she arrived at Belleville, her heart stopped for about one minute after she went into cardiac arrest. She had suffered a traumatic brain injury, a stroke, and multiple fractures in her head, pelvis, and leg. Miss Gousseau's mother said that on the second day, a nurse told her that her daughter was gone and asked about organ donations. Mr. Lungard, her boyfriend, had spent every night at the hospital. Nobody had told him what the nurse said that second night. Nobody had the heart to. Before the accident, in May, she had, she had had surgery to receive a cochlear implant, an electronic device known as a bionic ear in her left ear. She took the fall semester off of Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art to recuperate. Now, after the accident, Miss Gousseau had not allowed anyone to put in her cochlear implant or the hearing aid she wore in her other ear. Her boyfriend, Mr. Lungard, read on the Internet about Helen Keller and her teacher, Annie Sullivan. To communicate, Miss Sullivan used her finger to spell words on Miss Keller's palm. He didn't think it would work, but about 3 a.m. that November morning in her hospital room, leaning over her bed and holding her hand, he decided to try. With his index finger, he spelled one capital letter at a time. I love you. 
Oh, you love me? She told him. That's so sweet. Thank you. It was the first time she had responded in any significant way to many attempts to communicate with her. In her disoriented state, she thought it was a a kind stranger. It wasn't even a conversation, Mr. Lungard said. It was just that one exchange which alerted me to the fact that she was not damaged to such an extent that it was beyond her ability to recover. Mr. Lungard later had a longer conversation with Miss Gousseau in which he, he finger-spelled questions and she responded. It took a long time to spell one sentence, but she understood what he wrote on her palm, telling him that the year it was and where she was born. Shortly after, she allowed her hearing aid to be put in her right ear, and in an instant, she was back. When she came to, it was like a party in the hospital, Mr. Lungard said. All the nurses came in. They were like dancing and screaming. So the article goes on. The big rig had nearly killed her 71 days ago. Now, in late December, she, she lays in bed, teasing Mr. Lungard about the crush she had on him in sophomore year, laughing about a joke one of her therapists had told her. She spoke of wanting to graduate from Cooper, of wanting to sculpture again, of wanting to join the Peace Corps. She believes she will get her sight back. They told me that there was a very small chance, but if there's a chance, then I'll believe in it she said, and I'll have hope in it. Miss Gousseau reached for his arms. He leaned over the bed. You want to get up, he asked? No, she said. I want a hug. Now, why, why does it seem obvious to us as we hear that story that this couple is going to come out of this experience and really come out of life? There's a sense that we, we have no doubt that they're going to make it as a couple. They're going to have a long, happy life together as opposed especially to thinking about a couple who wins the lottery. Why is it that that it seems like, well, it's because of suffering. Jesus would have said, that's not surprising. There's a dynamic of finding yourself in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering. There's power in suffering towards your identity, towards who you are, towards yourself. Um, And someone might say, well, you know, it's actually, for me, it's great adversity that makes me object to there being a loving God. It's because of pain and wounds in my life that made me give up on God. But hold on a second. If you find yourself saying that, one of the things to ask is, what was your starting point with God? Did you begin with a God, perhaps, who existed to help you gain the world? That was proved, or di- His existence was proved or disproved on the basis of whether the life that you had sort of pre-approved panned out for you? Could it be, for some of us sitting here this morning, there are wounds and pains that God has long waited in your life to meet you in the midst of, but you've been holding off because you're certain that they are just evidence of God's distance from you. Have you ever thought about some of those things? They might be buried so deep that you never deal with them at all on the surface that it's right there that God has always intended to finally meet you, move towards you in your suffering. I can't, I can't come up, and I don't know if anybody can come up with an answer as to the mystery of why God didn't just decide to take away suffering altogether. If he was going to do something about this world, something about our lives, I don't know why he didn't just take it all away. But on the flip side, there is something we do know is that how he did choose to come towards us is, is that he went ahead of us to the cross. He went ahead of us into suffering in order that he might meet us there. And that's something, at least. And that's something that says something about the kind of God you have 
in the midst of this broken world. Now, there's one other point, and that is why Jesus went there for you. Why did Jesus have to go there? Why did he have to go to suffering in order to bring our identity back? Um, Jesus' death, basically when he went to the cross, it amounted to a whole crowd of people looking at him and saying, you're worthless, you don't deserve to live. Have you ever had any, even an ounce of a sense of that from, from other people in social situations throughout your life, maybe even in a, at a family level, people looking at you and saying, I don't think you're worth it. You know, I don't think uh, you're worthless. You know how much that rocks us and rocks our identity? To have it in our mind, to start to get a, a feeling, even if it's just internal, that the, the message of you're worthless is bigger than the message of you're worth something. That just shakes us. That unsettles us. That agitates us. And that a lot of times makes up for a lot of our identity issues in our life to go from, in some cases, being settled, but in other cases, because of the issues of our worth, being unsettled and agitated. Jesus goes right into the middle of that. And there's a crowd basically saying and convincing him, it would seem, or giving him a convincing message that he's worthless. He's not worth anything. Um... You picture a 13-year-old feeling this strongly for the first time, coming home from school with uh, having been really teased by a group of the popular kids, maybe, and telling mom about it, and mom saying those such, such helpful words. Oh, don't worry, they're just jealous. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if any 13-year-old ever believes that. It's, it seems like that's from Mars, that message. That's not true. They're, the, they're cooler. It's clear. The problem's not them. The problem's with me. They're cooler than me. They have it together and I don't. There's obviously something wrong with me. That's why this is happening. There's actually a wisdom in what mom, the mom says in that situation that is actually really true of saying to, to this child, there really is something wrong. In this equation, there's something wrong with that, that group doing that. They're the ones in this interchange. If somehow I could help you believe, you know, out of love, the mom's trying to help this child believe that, that the problem really is with them. It's not with you. You're not worthless the way they, they want to tell you that you are. Um, how, in, in many ways, we still carry on these kind of issues and we play them out, if not just maybe privately. How are we going to f- be convinced of our worth? In a, in, a, in a long-lasting way, in our, deep in our identity. How are you going to find that? You know, Jesus, when he was on the cross, he should have, his, his, any sense of who he was, any sense of his worth should have been extinguished. But he, it seems, was the first person ever in the midst of that kind of convincing message of his worthlessness. He was the first person to, to stay centered and settled and to, and to actually believe what the mom tells the 13-year-old. The problem's with them. You know how we know that? Because he looked out, and his, and his words were from the cross, Father, forgive them. The message of Jesus in that position was to know his identity as the forgiver and to exude that forgiveness even in that instance. There was nothing this world could do to shake Jesus' identity as he went into suffering and he should have been completely rattled. I like to picture Mary just being so surprised because maybe wanting to say, Jesus, don't worry, they're just jealous. <laughs> but, but just being so dismayed, so amazed that he's, fine, he's so centered. 
He's so fine. He's not even rattled at this. Who is this man? Are you asking that in some way? Because if you begin asking who Jesus is, you'll see that the reason he did that, the reason he went confidently there is so that you could you could become a Christian and be baptized into his strong and settled and certain identity. Because in baptism, Christians say we're baptized into Christ. And what is his, that strong identity can be yours. You can be settled. You can actually find that your failures don't deflate you and your accomplishments don't necessarily, unnecessarily inflate you. And you can be settled, not in your own, not in your own accomplishments or failures, but you can be settled in Christ going before you into suffering. Have you looked at the cross? Jesus wants now in his ministry, he wants with the disciples to move their attention to the cross, and he wants to do that with us over and over always. He wants to move your eyes. As you look to 2011, he wants to move your eyes towards the cross. He wants you to see what he has done to settle your heart in a world of unsettled and agitated hearts. As we wonder what our worth is, the message from heaven cries out that these words are now true of you that were said to Jesus. This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. That is now yours if you have it in Christ. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that this year, even here at City Life, may be filled with transformative encounters with your grace, that there may be people here and people we don't even yet know who through looking at the cross and through your Holy Spirit opening up hearts will find themselves a new person in 2011, will find themselves transformed by a new identity that says, you love us despite the fact that we find ourselves to feel often in the dumps and worthless, that you have given us a new secure identity in Christ. We are your children. We have been adopted. We are loved forever. Will you help us to believe that and will you change hearts this year with that message of grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.